Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. And this is today's story, Forgotten Heroes, Part 1. Our lives are defined by the actors and actions of the past. And when asked, we can probably name a few dozen heroes whose courage inspired others, and sometimes even helped to shape history. The truth is, there are many more forgotten heroes and doers of good deeds whose actions have been lost in the veil of time, their stories relegated to the pages of old books, names of places, and maybe signs along the roadside. Some of their stories exist only in the memories of the storytellers. I run into these stories of all types at times and find them fascinating. Occasionally I'll put them in a collection like this. I hope you enjoy them. You may never visit or sail by the churchyard of Old St. Aidan's Church in Bamberg, Northumberland, UK, where stands a beautiful Victorian Gothic memorial to a young woman named Grace Darling. Sailors and fishermen in that remote island area know well what the memorial stands for as they pass it and sometimes bow their heads in reverence to it. Our first forgotten hero's story today tells of Grace Darling, often called the heroine of Longstone Lighthouse. Her father kept the lighthouse on Farne Islands, located on the southern tip of the island of Inner Farne, off the coast of North Northumberland, in the UK. As you picture its location in your mind, it's on the east coast of the UK, a little south of Scotland and Edinburgh. As the story goes, a fast rising storm overtook the steamer Forfarshire as it reached the open sea off Spurn Head it's on September 6, 1838 on her way from Hull Tom Dundee. Even in the fairest weather, this ship, with her leaky boilers, was none too safe. But as the storm gathered in fury, and she rolled and tossed among the mountainous waves, her boilers were strained, and great rents were made in her sides, through which water poured and put out the fires, making the vessel unmanageable. The crew tried to use her sails so as to keep the ship out to sea, but they were quickly blown to shreds by the storm. As the night fell, they tossed and drifted in the dark at the full mercy of the storm, and at midnight the great foreign light off the Northumberland coast was seen, warning them of their immediate danger. The rocks there were known to go down a hundred fathoms deep and poised a terrible threat to ships. Upon these rocks the ship, with its crew, was dashed and torn to pieces, and literally cut in two. The stern sank in deep water with over forty souls, whereas the bow, with nine sailors and passengers clinging to the wreck, was fast on the rocks, swept by immense waves and buffeted by the storm. It's hard to imagine the scope of their terror as they clung there, waiting for the dawn and praying for help. As the dawn broke, they could see, a mile away, the Longstone Lighthouse, built on the outer island of the group where a weather-beaten old sailor named Darling tended the maps, along with his wife and his 22-year-old daughter, whose name was Grace. Neither of the three had slept through the night, for the waves had been thundering upon the rocks and dashing over the lighthouse lantern above the sea. When it was light enough, Grace mounted the lighthouse tower with the telescope. Far away in the raging sea, she could see the nine poor souls still clinging to the wreck. Knowing full well that, with a rising tide and the storm still mounting, they would perish. Grace determined that she must try to save them. She couldn't stand here and watch them perish without trying. Her father and mother did all they could to persuade her not to go out, because she faced what looked like certain death. She asked her father to go with her, but he, being old and worn, refused, begging her to stay. The daughter went to launch the lighthouse boat, and her mother, seeing that Grace was fully determined, went to help her launch it. As they readied it, her father showed up in his storm her father showed up in his storm gear, and the three launched the boat, while father and daughter rowed out through the crashing breakers. 
Battling with the vicious winds and angry waters, the two at last reached the wreck, carefully positioned the pitching and rolling lifeboat under each of the exhausted survivors, and brought all nine of the sufferers back to the lighthouse. The story of Grace Darling's heroism spread quickly through the country and soon through the world. Generous people sent money and presents to the brave girl, whom many came long distances just to see. Grace and her family enjoyed the money and the attention, but only for a few years, when Grace, who was now 26, developed tuberculosis and died. When she died, they laid her to sleep within sight of the scene where she had saved those nine lives. A monument to Grace Darling was built in Bamberg, Northumberland, in 1842. It's located about 30 yards west of the church at St. Aidan. We'll return with our second story right after these sponsor messages. And now, another Forgotten Heroes story. Did you ever wonder how the expression women and children first originated? This is the story. If you're visiting Scotland, make a note to stop in the Blackwatch Museum in Perth to see Thomas M. M. Hemmy's oil painting, The Wreck of the HMS Birkenhead. It's a very moving portrayal of a moment in time aboard the deck of an English troop ship as it crashed into a sunken rock in Simons Bay, South Africa, on a February night in 1852. In the painting, you'll see lines of young men in uniform, a drummer drumming, as ordered by the commanding officer, and an orderly effort to load the women and children passengers onto lifeboats as the men looked on. The main mast has been destroyed, and most of the sails you can see are useless. White water and rocks show off the starboard bow, and the ship's deck is listing dangerously to starboard. If you're able to search the picture online, it's called the wreck of the HMS Birkenhead. It will help as I tell this story. As the story begins, the steamer HMS Birkenhead was on its way from England to South Africa in February of 1852. On board were the crew and a number of soldiers, in addition the wives and children of some of the soldiers, for they were not going to war, but to form part of a garrison of the country. As the great ship steamed along the coast of Africa, no one was dreaming of danger. It was night, and all but the night crew was sleeping, when suddenly her side crashed against a sunken rock. Everyone hurried onto the deck, for they all knew from the shock that some great disaster had happened. One would have expected great panic, but there was none. The officers gave their orders, and the men obeyed them as steadily as if they had been on the parade ground. The soldiers were set to help the sailors, working at the pumps to keep the ship from sinking, and sadly getting the horses overboard to lighten her. It must have been a sore task for the men who loved and cared for those horses, but they couldn't be saved. Despite the pumping, the water still came in. The ship continued to list, and everyone knew it was going to sink. At that time, they set about launching the lifeboats. The sea had not been dangerous for the big ship when she was whole, but it was too rough for the small boats. One big boat and two small ones with women and children were filled and pushed off safely. Another was smashed by a falling spar, and two were swamped before anyone could get in them. Then the ship herself broke in two, and one half began to sink. The soldiers were ordered to draw up in ranks. The captain called for them to swim to the boats, but the colonel, who outranked the captain, so that the soldiers would overfill the boats and swamp them. The men stood in formation, awaiting their officer's orders. He told them that if they swam for the boats, they would capsize them upon reaching them, causing the deaths of women and children. So the men stood in their lines, waiting for the ship to go down, as steady as if they were on a drill ground. Then the hungry waves washed over the deck, and the sailors were plunged into the sea. All they could hope for was to keep afloat until the lifeboats reached the shore and sent rescuers back to them. A very few managed to swim to shore on their own. A few more hung on to the wreck, and they were picked up the next morning by a passing vessel which had already picked up the people in the boats who were unable to reach the shore. But the greater number of soldiers perished following orders, heroes no less than if they'd fallen on the field of battle. 
only 193 of the 643 people on board survived. The soldier chivalry gave rise to the first unofficial Women and Children First protocol when abandoning ship, while the Birkenhead drill of Rudyard Kipling's poem came to describe courage in the face of hopeless circumstances. This is a part of his 1893 poem called Soldier and Sailor Two. To take your chance in the thick of a rush with firing all about is nothing so bad when you've covered to and and leave and liken to shout. But to stand and be still to the Birkenhead drill is a damn tough bullet to chew. And they done it, the jollies, Her Majesty's jollies, soldier and sailor too. Our next story is that of a group of very unlikely heroes, cab drivers, in fact, working in Paris in 1914. It was the outset of World War I, August of 1914, and the attacking German army was driving relentlessly toward Paris. France was in deep trouble, and the threat of losing the war in its first days was imminent. By the first week of September, the Germans were 40 miles from Paris, and it was then that the French army decided to make an all-or-nothing last stand at the River Marne. It seemed almost certain that the French army would be crushed and their capital city captured. There were 6,000 French soldiers in Paris that just might make the difference if they could get to that river in time. But armies back then moved by foot. There were no motorized troop carriers. One of the generals, General Joseph Joffrey, realized suddenly that Paris was full of cabs. They weren't large, but they were many in number. They had just replaced horse-drawn vehicles, and Paris was full of them by 1914. The word went out that cabs were needed to transport the thousands of soldiers in Paris to the front lines at the Marne River, and immediately cabbies began unloading their passengers. Six hundred cabs lined up by request at the appointed hours, and then General Galliani, military commander of Paris, came out to inspect them. He was heard to say, "'Here's something you don't see every day,' as he stared at the huge gathering of Renaults, which could hold five soldiers each. The first wave of soldiers were rushed to the front in a miles-long line of motorized cabs. Every taxi had to make the 75-mile round trip to the front twice, and the effort worked, as the presence of the 6,000 soldiers made the difference in what history calls the miracle of the Marne. The French army held firm, and Paris was saved, thanks to the bravery of the soldiers and the patriotic response of Paris's cabbies. The Battle of the Marne prevented Germany from winning a decisive battle at the outset of World War I. Beyond that, things got very rough, leading to four years of trench warfare that cost millions of lives. But for the time, the cabbies of Paris had saved the day. Our next story, you will most likely never have a need to visit the plush Montefiore Randwick Nursing Home at 36 Danger Street in Randwick, near Sydney, Australia. But if you do manage to approach this five-star residential care facility, please know that the gates to this facility are named after the hero of our story. I know we have a lot of listeners in the land down under, so those nearby, take a listen here. The gates are named after a very courageous Jewish resistance fighter named Rosa Rabota. This initiative was made possible by Sam Spitzer, a resistance fighter during World War II, and currently a resident of Sydney. He named the gates in honor of his wartime hero, Rabota, and his late wife, Margaret. Spitzer's sister was in Auschwitz with Rabota, and it is Rabota's actions, while held as prisoner in Auschwitz, that we share today. She is largely unknown, but her memory lives on in other places as well, and we'll share that as we go forward. Born in Chechenau, Poland, to a middle-class family, Rosa had one brother and one sister. She was a member of the Hashemer Hatzar Zionist Socialist Youth Movement, and joined that movement's underground upon the 1939 Nazi German invasion of Poland. 
Rosa was transported to Auschwitz concentration camp in a Holocaust train during the liquidation of the Chechenau ghetto in 1942. She survived this election and was assigned to Auschwitz II Birkenau Labor Commando for Women, where she got involved in the underground dissemination of news among the prisoners. No one else from her family in Europe is known to have survived. She worked in the clothing depot at the Birkenau Effektenlager, adjacent to Crematorium 3 at Birkenau, where the bodies of gas chamber victims were burned. She had been recruited by men of the underground, whom she knew from her hometown, to smuggle Schwarzpulver, gunpowder, or dynamite, which we know as gunpowder, or dynamite, that had been collected by the women in the Krupp Weichel Munitions Factory, and then transferring it to a Sonder commando man named Robel, who was also active in the resistance. This Schwarzpulver was used to manufacture primitive grenades to help blow up the crematorium during the Sonder Commando revolt. In her work, she was assisted by Hadassah Zitnika and her male counterpart, Gaudel Silber, both also from Chechenau, whom Raboda apparently enlisted in the resistance. Together with a few other women who worked in the Nazi Pulveram factory, they were able to obtain hide and turn over to the men of the underground no more than one to three teaspoons of the Schwarzpulver compound per day, and not every day. Finally, the Sonder Commando blew up Crematorium 3 on October 6, 1944. Roboda and three other women, Ala Gertner, Esther Watchbloom, and Regina Seferstin, were arrested by the Gestapo and tortured in the infamous Block 11, but they refused to reveal the names of others who participated in the smuggling operation. The three women were hanged on January 6, 1945, two women at the morning roll-call assembly, two others in the evening. Robota was 23 years old. According to some eyewitness accounts, she and her comrades shouted, Nakima, vengeance, or be strong, to the assembled inmates before they died. Some say one of them shouted, Shazak Vamatz, be strong and have courage, the biblical phrase that God used to encourage Joshua after the death of Moses. The Sonder Commando revolt caused some 70 fatalities among the SS and Kapos and blew the roof off one crematorium. Yet the Nazis knew the advancing Russian army was very close to liberating the camp. It was clear to the Nazis that all evidence of the wartime atrocities had to be concealed, so the Germans attempted to destroy the other four crematoria themselves. At Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, a monument was built to honor Rabota and the three other executed women. It stands in a prime location in the garden. In the United States, the Rosa Rabota Foundation, Incorporated, a not-for-profit educational organization in New York State, has been active in the dissemination of information and has offered audiovisual presentations to student and civic groups since 1994. Lest we forget. The Foundation also arranged a 50th anniversary commemoration of the Sonder Commando Revolt at the site of a destroyed crematorium in the Auschwitz Museum. Another commemorative event is planned to take place in Auschwitz in October this year, 2023. No amount of stories or books could tell all the stories of World War II's heroes who gave their lives in every corner of the world to fight for freedom. And Rosa Rabota was one of those heroes. Ever heard of Israel Bissell? The Historical Society at Pennsylvania's Special Collections Library is located at 1300 Locust Street in Philadelphia and is open to the public Tuesdays through Fridays. It has more than 21 million items in its collection, one of which was the message carried by Israel Bissell as he rode to alarm the colonies with the news that British troops were marching on Lexington and Concord. It was an epic ride a ride he made the day after Paul Revere's ride, the one that was immortalized in the poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Paul Revere's name and ride quickly became an icon in American folklore. Israel Bissell's ride is largely unknown, yet he deserves an important place in American revolutionary history. Hours after hearing that British troops had opened fire on colonial farmers in what became known as the Battle of Lexington, the Mass Provincial Congress issued a call to arms asking neighboring colonies to help. Israel Bissell, 
a 23-year-old dispatch writer, was sent south to spread the news of the revolution, calling, To arms! To arms! The war has begun! And carrying a message to all friends of American liberty, a message which detailed the encounter in Lexington, and charged Bissell to alarm the colonies with the news. Under his spurs his horse seemed to take wings. Local legend has it that he made Worcester, usually a day's ride, in just two hours, and that his horse dropped dead upon arrival. From Watertown, Massachusetts, along the old post road, and with a new horse, Bissell was off again, racing through Connecticut, then to New York, then to Philadelphia. Incredibly, he rode 360 miles in just six days, carrying the message from General Joseph Palmer, which was copied at each of his stops and then redistributed. By contrast, Paul Revere rode just 20 miles, and we're glad he made it. But the ride by Bissell far outdid that of Revere's. In 1995, Massachusetts poet Clay Perry wrote these words which recall Bissell's ride. Listen, my children, to my epistle of the long, long ride of Israel Bissell, who outrode Paul by miles in time, but didn't rate a poet's rhyme. One final note, and I know some of our historians here would call for it. Another writer whose fame has been largely lost through time is William Dawes, who has set out to warn the colonies of the impending British attack on Lexington the same night as Paul Revere, the night of April 18, 1775. Unlike Revere, Dawes was able to slip by the guards. Dawes started out about an hour before Revere and made it to Lexington and then Concord, warning local militias of the impending battle. There is much about the battles of Lexington and Concord I don't know, and I plan to correct that soon. Stay tuned this summer, hopefully, for the full story. The bells will never chime for this forgotten man, and you would have to really stretch it to call him a hero. Better yet, don't even try. His life didn't amount to much. In fact, this 34-year-old homeless man, whose name was Glenvere Michael, committed suicide by eating rat poison. His corpse, however, played an important part in the winning of World War II. By early 1943, the Allies were getting ready to invade Nazi-occupied Europe from North Africa. Their first target, the island of Sicily. For the invasion to succeed, it was absolutely critical that the enemy be caught off guard. The codename of this top-secret operation? Operation Mincemeat. British intelligence grabbed a corpse from a London morgue and furnished him with a completely new identity. He was outfitted with a uniform and papers placed in his pockets identified him as Major William Martin, a military courier. A briefcase with forged documents suggesting that the target of the Allied invasion would be Greece was chained to his wrist. When this was all finished, a British submarine carried the body to the coast of Spain and dumped it, making it look as though he was a military courier who was killed in a plane crash. Spanish authorities soon found the body, and as hoped, showed the papers to German authorities. The news was rushed to Hitler, who made the defense of Greece a top priority. The German high command sent panzer units there, and Hitler ordered the famed General Erwin Rommel to Athens to mastermind the battle, which, of course, never took place. Instead, forces under Generals Bernard Montgomery and George Patton came ashore in Sicily, where German forces were sparsely defending. The battle for Italy would heat up soon, but the Allies had made a critical landing and gained an important foothold, all with the help of the man who never was, the corpse of Glendier Michael. As a side note, the idea was the brainchild of Rear Admiral John Godfrey, head of British naval intelligence, and his trusted assistant, Ian Fleming, in 1939. Fleming's creativity continued after the war with his long and successful series of James Bond novels. Also, two movies were made about Operation Mincemeat, one, called The Man Who Never Was, in 1956, and Operation Mincemeat, made just last year, in 2022. In 
"'If you ever travel to the Swiss Alps, "'take a day to visit the town of Lucerne "'and stop by its glacier garden. "'There is a beautiful and haunting memorial there "'which was sculpted out of natural rock. "'It represents a wounded lion "'pierced by a broken weapon, "'defending with its paw, "'as it lies dying, "'a shield bearing the fleur-de-lis of France. "'Your first thought is, "'Why is such a monument here in the Alps "'and not in France?' Then your eyes travel to the Latin inscription on the rock over the lion's head, which reads, Hel Vittorium Fide Ac Virtuti, which reads in English, To the Fidelity and Courage of the Swiss. That is followed by names of the officers and men who fell, not in the defense of their own country, but simply for doing their duty as they swore to do for a foreign king. The Swiss have often been noted in history for their brave deeds, but one deed forgotten by many Swiss was one which occurred far from their beautiful homeland, in Paris, France, in 1792. That was the year of the deadly French Revolution. The French kings had learned to rely on the Swiss, and had formed an honor guard of trusty yeomen from Lucerne and other cantons, calling it La Garde de Roy. When the mob stormed the Tuileries Palace, in which the royal family resided, on August 10, 1792, the Swiss guards stood firm defending King Louis XVI. They could easily have bolted as the angry crowds approached. They were outnumbered fifty to one. In fact, the entire population of Paris, as it seems, had turned out to overthrow the king and seize the spoils for themselves. Anyone who represented royalty or was known to be a friend of royalty was being sought out and executed by guillotine. Men, women, and children— Murder was rampant. The multitudes were out of control. But as for the king and queen, the multitudes could only reach them over the bodies of the fighting Swiss guards. One after another of the Swiss soldiers were massacred, fighting bravely until two entire battalions were overcome. And when the rest fell, on September 2nd and 3rd, the Swiss guards were almost completely wiped out. Thousands of rioters lay dead just outside the Tuileries. Of the 900 Swiss guards defending the palace on August 10, 1792, about 600 were killed during the fighting or massacred after they surrendered. One group of 60 Swiss were taken prisoner and taken to the Paris City Hall before being killed by the crowd there. An estimated 160 more died in prison of their wounds or were killed during the September massacres that followed. Apart from less than 100 Swiss who escaped from the Tuileries, some hidden by sympathetic Parisians. The only survivors of the regiment were a 300-strong detachment that had been sent to Normandy to escort grain convoys a few days before August 10th. The Swiss officers were mostly massacred, although Major Karl Joseph von Bachmann, in command of the Tuileries, was formally tried and guillotined in September, still wearing his red uniform coat. Two Swiss officers, the captains Henri de Sales and Joseph Zimmermann, did, however, survive, and went on to reach senior rank under Napoleon in the Restoration. The 135-man Swiss Guard group guarding the Vatican today is the last of the proud Swiss Guard, wearing distinctly Renaissance-period uniforms of blue, red, orange, and yellow, and carrying modern firearms. The Guard's training and capabilities have been upgraded ever since the assassination attempt on Pope John Paul II in 1981. Recruits to the guards must be unmarried males between the ages of 18 and 30 who have completed basic training with the Swiss Armed Forces. So if you're looking for a career position with them, understand that you'll be working with the Swiss Guard, heroes of legend. Heroes come in all shapes and sizes, and from all walks of life. I'm going to share a little-known story of how a dedicated doctor and a small contingent of heroes sacrificed themselves to help researchers discover the causes of yellow fever, a deadly disease which has killed millions of people on many continents in the past, and still kills in Africa, despite vaccines that now exist to treat it. But there was a time when we knew nothing about the yellow fever, and it's only due to the courage of some men we were able to come to terms with it. In colonial times and during the Napoleonic Wars, 
"'The West Indies were known to be a particularly dangerous posting for soldiers due to yellow fever. "'The mortality rate for British garrisons in Jamaica, for instance, were seven times higher than that of Canada. "'At one point, Napoleon sent an army under the command of his brother-in-law to what is today the Dominican Republic to seize control after a slave revolt.' but yellow fever decimated his army there, killing somewhere near 35,000 French soldiers, and causing Napoleon to give up on his plans for not only San Domingo, but North America as well, when he sold his French holdings in the Louisiana Purchase in 1803. So we got a huge section of the southern United States for a song, mostly thanks to the yellow fever's impact on Napoleon's army. The American colonies had a very difficult time with it, the first outbreak occurring in New York City in 1668. Philadelphia and colonists in the Mississippi River Valley took a huge hit in 1669, as well as Baltimore. Nearly 10% of the population of Philadelphia was wiped out in 1793 by yellow fever. Then New Orleans was hit in 1833 and 1853. Then Memphis, Savannah, and Norfolk in 1855, and Charleston fell victim to the plague. Then it hit the U.S. Navy. Then in 1881, a Cuban doctor named Carlos Finlay proposed that mosquitoes could possibly be causing the spread of the deadly disease. At that time, a group of Army doctors began research experiments with a team led by Walter Reed and composed of doctors James Carroll, Aristides Agramonte, and Jesse William Lazier. They were assisted in their experiments by other brave volunteers, chiefly soldiers of the United States Army who were stationed in Havana, Cuba. Cuba was a huge epicenter for infectious disease. It was thought that the yellow fever was spread by the air. Others thought it was a curse from God. When Cuba came under American protection, the U.S. Army saw fit to try to eradicate disease on that island. The doctors tested every theory and found that Dr. Finlay was most likely right. A certain kind of mosquito carried the deadly disease from one human being to another. But they hit a stumbling block because the next step required testing this theory on humans. Dr. Carroll and Dr. Lazier allowed themselves to be bitten by mosquitoes which occupied the same room with yellow fever patients, and both developed the deadly disease. Dr. Lazier died, leaving a widow and two little children. He was only 34, and had willingly risked his life so that more could be known about the disease. The three surviving doctors then decided that, having proved that a special kind of mosquito could carry yellow fever, they next had to prove that there was no other way by which it could be transmitted. If they failed to do this, the confusion and dread that surround the disease would be increased. They set up two houses, one called the Infected Mosquito House, and the other the Infected Clothing House. The Infected Mosquito House was divided into two rooms, separated from each other by a wire screen. In one room was placed mosquitoes which had been fed on the blood of yellow fever patients while the other room was kept entirely free of the killer insects. The plan was to put men who had never had the disease in each room and await the results. Volunteers were called for. Immediately two young soldiers, John Kissinger and young John Moran, both from Ohio, offered to go into the room with the killer mosquitoes. Solely in the interest of humanity and the cause of science, Dr. Reed explained in detail the danger and suffering involved, but they listened unmoved. He then told them that a money compensation would be given them, but both men refused to accept it, saying that they would not submit to the experiment at all if money were involved. Whereas Major Reed touched his cap and said, Gentlemen, I salute you. After three days, both men developed a fever. After the two men contracted the disease, their garments and bed linens were moved to the second room, to which more volunteers came. For twenty nights, those volunteers lived in that small room, where temperatures exceeded ninety degrees, sleeping in beds and linens which had been fully used by the yellow fever victims. These volunteers were not affected. As a result of their and others' testing, we now know that one type of mosquito carries the disease, and the only way to contract the disease is by being bitten by one of those mosquitoes which carries the killer plague. Dr. Lazier, as we already know, and some of their volunteers, most of whom's names were not given here, died. 
"'the only name I could find of the volunteers who died "'was that of a nurse named Clara Maas. "'The rest of the names are buried deep in the research evaluation papers. "'After that, yellow fever was banished from the Isthmus of Panama, "'a vaccine was created, and yellow fever was severely curtailed, "'although it hasn't yet disappeared from the earth. "'We can only hope, while we thank the brave few who stepped up "'and gave their lives to save those of countless others.' If one of you can find the names of the men who died and send that to me, I'll share it with our listeners. Most of you know how to reach me. The best way is email at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. That's 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. One more story from the world of science, and this one's called Penicillin's Forgotten Heroes. Fleming may have discovered it, but two Oxford scientists are the heroes who realized its value. This comes from an Oxford news blog, written by Pete Wilton, July 29, 2009. His question, who really invented the wonder drug penicillin? Alexander Fleming is the name in our history books, but tonight a new BBC drama highlights the role Oxford University scientists played in this vital medical breakthrough. Breaking the Mold, the story of penicillin, tells the story of the team which turned Fleming's discovery that the mold Penicillum notatum produced a substance that inhibited the growth of some bacteria into the drug that transformed medicine. According to the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, Alexander Fleming had discovered penicillin, essentially by accident, in 1928, but he and his colleagues found that the culture extract containing penicillin was unstable, and the antibiotic was impossible to isolate in a pure state, and so they effectively gave up research on it. The Oxford scientists Howard Florey and Ernst Chain were key members of the team, which began comprehensive experiments with Fleming's mold in 1939, soon after drafting in their colleague Norman Heatley to help solve many of the problems involved in turning out a useful product. Florey's successor, head of the Dunn School of Pathology at Oxford, Sir Henry Harris, has written an excellent summary of how the drug was developed and the many scientists who contributed. In it, he highlights the forgotten man of the Oxford group, the aforementioned Norman Heatley, who controversially did not share the 1945 Nobel Prize for the discovery with Fleming, Florey, and Chain, writing... Norman Heatley's contributions were critical. He first devised the cylinder plate diffusion technique that provided a reliable and sensitive assay for penicillin and that was later adopted as the standard assay for antibiotic activity. He then suggested a procedure for extracting from organic solvents in which penicillin was soluble, a stable salt that was soluble in water. This procedure formed the basis of an early counter-current distribution apparatus which Heatley devised and built. In advance of the program being shown, Norman Heatley's widow Mercy told the Oxford Mail, My husband was particularly good at extracting it, penicillin, from things. I think it seemed to grow best on grapefruit. I feel sad Fleming is always named as the discoverer. I think what happened was he was always happy to talk to the press, whereas Florey wasn't keen to talk to them and have his team disrupted, which is why Fleming received all the publicity. Hopefully the program will help to set the record straight about who really deserves credit for a drug that saves so many lives. And hopefully Norman Heatley and his comrades will one day get all the credit that they deserve for creating the drug that has probably saved more lives on Earth than any other. There's one more forgotten hero story I'd like to share, and this time the hero is a dog called Balto. I can just see you out there shaking your heads trying to figure out who that is. On the southeast side of Central Park, just off Central Park East Drive, Park Drive North, at 67th Street, you'll find a statue of Balto the Wonder Dog. It's a life-size bronze statue located atop a rock in New York City Central Park, and for a long time it's been a favorite stop for families with kids who straddle Balto's back non-stop. 
"'A plaque on the rock is dedicated to the indomitable spirit of sled dogs. "'Now I wonder if it's coming to you. "'I have no idea if a dog's spirit can inhabit a statue, "'but if it can, I would guess that Balto probably enjoys all the attention. "'Our story. "'The children of Nome, Alaska, were dying in January of 1925. "'Infected with diphtheria, they wheezed and gasped for air.' and every day brought a new case of the lethal respiratory disease. Nome's lone physician, Dr. Curtis Welsh, feared an epidemic that could put the entire village of 1,400 at risk. He ordered a quarantine, but knew that only an antitoxin serum could ward off the fast-spreading disease. The nearest batch of the life-saving medicine, however, rested more than 1,000 miles away in Anchorage. Nome's ice-choked harbor made sea transport impossible and open-cockpit airplanes could not fly in Alaska's sub-zero temperatures. With the nearest train station nearly 700 miles away in Nanana, canine power offered Nome its best hope for a speedy delivery. Sled dogs regularly beat Alaska's snowy trails to deliver mail, and the territory's governor, Scott C. Bone, recruited the best drivers and dog teams to stage a round-the-clock relay to transport the serum from Nanana to Rome. On the night of January 27, 1925, a train whistle pierced Nanana's stillness as it arrived with the precious cargo, a 20-pound package of serum wrapped in protective fur. Musher Wild Bill Shannon tied the parcel to his sled. As he gave the signal, the paws of Shannon's nine Malamutes pounded the snow-packed trail on the first steps of a 674-mile great race of mercy through rugged wilderness across frozen waterways and over treeless tundra. Even by Alaskan standards, this winter night packed extra bite, with temperatures plummeting to 60 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Although every second was precious as the number of confirmed cases in Nome mounted, Shannon knew he needed to control his speed. If his dogs ran too fast and breathed too deeply in such frigid conditions, they could frost their lungs and die of exposure. Although Shannon ran next to the sled to raise his own body temperature, he still developed hypothermia and frostbite on the 52-mile leg to Tolavana before handing off the serum to the second dog team. With moonlight and even the northern lights illuminating the dark Alaskan winter days, the relay raced at an average speed of 6 miles per hour. While each leg averaged 30 miles, the country's most famous musher, Norwegian-born Leonhard Sapala, departed Shaktulik on January 31st on an epic 91-mile leg, having already rushed 170 miles from Nome to intercept the relay. Sapala decided on a risky shortcut over the frozen Norton Sound in the teeth of a gale that dropped wind chills to 85 degrees below zero. Sapala's lead dog, 12-year-old Siberian husky Togo, had logged tens of thousands of miles, but none as important as these. Togo and his 19 fellow dogs struggled for traction on Norton Sound's glassy skin, and the fierce winds threatened to break apart the ice and send the team adrift to sea. The team made it safely, though, to the coastline only hours before the ice cracked. Gusts continued to batter the team as it hugged the coastline before meeting the next musher, Charlie Olson, who, after 25 miles, handed off the serum to Gunnar Kaysen, for the scheduled second-to-last leg of the relay. As Kaysen set off into a blizzard, the pelting snow grew so fierce that his squinting eyes could not see any of his team, let alone his trusted lead dog, Balto. On loan from Sapala's kennel, Balto relied on scent, rather than sight, to lead the 13-dog team over a beaten trail as ice began to crust the long hairs of his brown coat. Suddenly, a massive gust upwards of 80 miles per hour flipped the sled and launched the antidote into a snowbank. Panic cursed through Kaysen's frostbitten body as he tore off his mitts and rummaged through the snow with his numb hands before locating the serum. Kaysen arrived in port safety in the early morning hours of February 2nd, but when the next team was not ready to leave, Kaysen decided to forge on to Nome himself. After covering 53 miles... Balto was the first sign of gnome salvation as the sled dogs yipped and yapped down Front Street 
at 5.30 a.m. to deliver the valuable package to Dr. Welch. The relay had taken five and a half days, cutting the previous speed record nearly in half. Four dogs died from exposure, giving their lives so that others could live. Three weeks after injecting the residents of Nome, Dr. Crosby lifted the quarantine. The sled dogs had saved the city. Although more than 150 dogs and 20 drivers participated in the relay, it was the canine that led the final miles that became a media superstar. Within weeks, Balto was signed to a Hollywood contract to star in a 30-minute film, Balto's Race to Nome. After a nine-month vaudeville tour, Balto was present in December of 1925 as a bronze statue of his likeness was unveiled in New York's Central Park. Sapala and his Siberians also toured the country and even appeared in an advertising campaign for Lucky Strike cigarettes. But the famous driver resented the glory lavished on Balto at the expense of Togo, who had guided the relay's longest and most arduous stretch. It was almost more than I could bear when the newspaper dog, Balto, received a statue for his glorious achievements, Sapala remarked. The serum run was Togo's last long-distance feat. He died in 1929, and his preserved body is on view at the Iditarod Trail Sled Dog Race headquarters in Wasilla, Alaska. After the limelight faded, Balto lived out his final days at the Cleveland Zoo, and his body's on display at the Cleveland Natural History Museum. Since 1973, the memory of the Serum Run has lived on in the Iditarod Trail Sled Dog Race, which is held each March and is run on some of the same trails beaten by Balto, Togo, and dozens of other sled dogs in a furious race against time nearly a century ago. The heroic dogs toured the U.S., but their fame eventually faded, and the team was sold to a vaudeville promoter. In 1927, a Cleveland businessman visiting Los Angeles discovered the dogs on display, ill-kept and in poor health. Cleveland school children donated pennies, and residents chipped in to raise $2,000 to buy Balto and the team. The money was raised, and the team was brought to Cleveland, where they were well cared for. As we mentioned, after his death in 1933, Balto was stuffed and put on display at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History, where he still stands today. We hope you'll always remember Balto and all the other sled dogs and drivers who saved the lives of all those people in Nome so many years ago. I hope you enjoyed Forgotten Heroes Part 1, and I'd like to let you know that I'm already working on Forgotten Heroes Part 2, but this one is specific heroes. The naval heroes of young America. These are men that we don't often hear about, and they're not really taught in schools in history class, but they're one of the big reasons that we're still a free country. The Navy of the United States has always been noted for deeds of daring, and boys and girls, too, can find many heroes among the brave commanders, from Paul Jones down to the present day. In the early days, the ships were of wood, and some were very small, but their commanders fought them as if they could not be harmed by the guns of their opponents. Years ago, every American heart was thrilled by the story of Old Ironsides, the American ship that couldn't be beaten. Commander Perry's victory on Lake Erie once fired the heart of many a boy and helped him to be brave and modest too. The names Jones, Perry, Lawrence, Bainbridge, Decatur, Preble, Hull, McDonough, names you've probably never heard, and all the rest have long been forgotten by most, while the love of our country does still burn in the hearts of many Americans. This story will talk about those long-forgotten early American naval heroes. That's Forgotten Heroes Part 2, Naval Heroes of a Young America. Thanks for joining us today at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories and Mysteries podcast. We always appreciate reviews, and we've got a few great reviews we'd like to share with you. Starting with Taffy 3 Story, 1001 Heroes, 5 Stars. One of my favorite stories of real heroes of all time. There are hundreds and thousands of stories about World War II, but this is one of the best, mostly unknown stories. 
I sent this to my nephew, who was on the Arley Burke Destroyer. He said he had never heard of the story until he went to Annapolis Naval Academy. It is one of the reasons he chose destroyers to serve on. Down from Wolfie Wolf, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you, Wolfie Wolf. I appreciate your review. And the next is called All 1001's Review. And although it's labeled 1001 Sherlock Holmes Stories, because it says All 1001's, I'm going to read it here. John, I found your work by accident several months back. I started with them to help me relax for sleep. However, your stories were so superiorly produced than others, I started listening during walks, gardening, and other leisure time. My favorite are all the Tarzans and Sherlock Holmes. Thank you for enjoying your work so much, as it certainly produces a fantastic product. Yours sincerely, G.P. Seneca, South Carolina, USA. Thank you, G.P. Seneca. And by the way, listeners, our third Tarzan story is now available at 1001 Stories for the Road. It's a fantastic story, and I invite you to listen to that one and the ones we've done before at 1001 Stories for the Road. And this one. I wish John Wayne was here today. 1001 Heroes, five stars. Great story about the Duke. John Wayne was a real guy, warts and all, but he was a man and a good one at that. He influenced a generation of good men. However, the pendulum has swung the other way, and now Wayne and his ilk bring out the shrill cries from today's social warriors. He epitomized the ideals of a society. Though that society has passed, there are still lessons to be learned from a study of his life and work. Keep up the good work, John. That one from Older and Heavier, Apple Podcast. Thank you. And this one, similar title. Great John Wayne Story, 1001 Heroes, 5 Stars. Very interesting podcast about John Wayne's life. I especially liked how you showed him to be a real person and not just a movie icon. To add to your story, I wanted to tell you about a friend of mine who was an extra in the movie The Horse Soldiers. He was one of the boys from the Virginia Military Academy. My friend told me that every day at lunchtime that John Wayne would sit down on the ground with the boys and tell them stories. This was a very special memory for him. Down from New Mexico Gal, Apple Podcast, U.S. And New Mexico Gal, I just wanted to tell you as we close today, The Horse Soldiers was one of my favorite John Wayne movies. Thanks for being with us today, everyone. Take care, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.